0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 30th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. When the White House began threatening the security clearances of people who have publicly criticized the president, the goal was likely not to punish them so much as send a message to potential whistleblowers down the line. That from Cato scholar Patrick Eddington. We spoke last week. The president has many critics. Uh, some of those critics have uh, taken to the airwaves uh, to talk about uh, the problems they have with the president. John Brennan um, has described uh, the president's uh, performance in Helsinki as uh, treasonous, and uh, John Brennan, of course, is former head of the CIA. And um, in response, the White House has said, well, maybe we need to uh, remove or revoke uh, these these critics to the extent that they have top secret or other security clearances we need to revoke those clearances as a as a response and they haven't really really seemed to try to hide the fact that this is pure retribution for public statements made by people who have been in the intelligence community so to the so is is there any case to be made for Uh, that being a a reasonable thing? Given the context, no. Now, I find myself in this
1: really bizarre position, as I noted in the piece that I wrote for Just Security on the 24th of July of 2018, uh, earlier this week, that uh, I'm in the position here of having to defend people who I really, really intensely dislike from a public policy standpoint. And you've already talked about one, uh, former CIA director John Brennan, and for those who, who may uh, not remember, it was Mr. Brennan who was the chief public apologist for George W. Bush's torture program. He did so in the News Hour in, in 2005. And, of course, it was also Brennan who ordered the break-in uh, of computers being used by Senate Intelligence Committee staffers to write the report on the torture program. So I'm, I'm not a fan of Mr. Brennan's uh, for that reason. Mr. Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, another one of the president's critics and targets – uh, of course, lied under oath to the Senate Intelligence Committee about domestic surveillance of of American citizens. And then finally, we have uh, former NSA and CIA Director Michael Hayden, uh, who helped to engineer the domestic surveillance programs that have been targeted against American citizens and also uh, missed a prime opportunity to actually stop 9-11 uh, by killing a particular program called Thin Thread, which uh, I've written about elsewhere. Uh, So these are not individuals who I hold in terribly high esteem. That being said, uh, like you and I, they are citizens of this country and they have a First Amendment protected right, uh, particularly in the context of dealing with government, uh, to say basically whatever they want to when it comes down to to public policy issues. So uh, these these individuals uh, and, of course, uh, the other individuals that were named by Sarah Huckabee Sanders are are kind of uh, Trump's uh, worst of the worst as far as he's concerned, former FBI Director James Comey, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, uh, and former Obama National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. So you know, one of the obvious questions that, that comes up in this context, of course, is, well, why in the world should these people continue to have clearances? And you know, that's a reasonable question, and the answer really is actually pretty simple. Many times these folks don't actually really completely leave government. And what I mean by that is that there are literally dozens, maybe hundreds essentially, of independent boards and commissions that reside within the executive branch uh, on a permanent basis. An example would be the Defense Science Board at the Pentagon. And there are also, uh, from time to time, congressionally created commissions, the 9-11 Commission, of course, being the most famous, uh, most well-known at least. So whenever individuals are named to those commissions... If they deal with national security issues, they are invariably uh, going to get into uh, material that will require them to have access to classified material. So to me, it's perfectly reasonable, uh, let's say in the case of a James Clapper or any former director of national intelligence, I think it's reasonable ultimately for them to maintain uh, that clearance uh, at least for a year or two after – uh, their successor has been confirmed by the Senate because the individual in question who's outgoing represents kind of the the, the macro-level institutional knowledge on the major issues that that the intelligence community has been working. So I, I think that's reasonable. Where I get very squeamish about this uh, is when folks like Mr. Hayden and I think others wind up setting up their own consulting firms or even go to work for major uh, defense or intelligence community contractors, let's say like Booz Allen or Lidos where having that clearance may give them, and thus their company, a potentially unfair competitive advantage uh, in, in negotiating contracts, or at least in terms of having knowledge of what the government is potentially interested in. So I, I do have some real concerns there, and I think some kind of reform in that area is probably uh, decades overdue, frankly. But what the president is doing here isn't just going after these individuals we've just discussed. His real target, in my judgment, are the men and women who are actually – Working in the Justice Department and specifically the FBI and the attorneys, uh, the agents and the attorneys who are working on Russia-related investigations. I think it's a clear attempt to intimidate them uh, and to let them know that uh, I can literally take away your meal ticket, which is your security clearance.
0: Right. So it's uh, it's well understood that people who have security clearances – in fact, if you live in Washington, D.C., there are uh, a bunch of websites that's, that are – job postings just for people with security clearances. Yes, exactly. And uh, it is well understood that if you lose a security clearance and you work in that kind of environment, that uh, your employment or your value as an employee goes down pretty tremendously if there are certain documents that are uh, provided to contractors that you are not allowed to look at. Yeah, I I don't think there's any question that probably with the exception of folks who
1: work in... Let's say the information technology arena, where you know you can pretty much all if you're if you're decent at what you do, you can almost always find a job, you know, working IT, cybersecurity things of that nature uh, in the private sector. But for a lot of other government uh, employees, and I'll, I'll just use my own background as, as kind of an example: if you're an imagery analyst, if you're somebody who was hired by the government to not just look at satellite imagery, but you know all this drone footage that we've accumulated over the course of the last seventeen years in the so-called War on Terror, that's still kind of a relatively discreet skill in a lot of respects. So if you lose your clearance in that context, uh, you're absolutely in trouble. And of course, if you're <clears throat> if you're in law enforcement, if you're at the FBI. Uh, and you wind up getting your clearance yanked, um, then your ability to remain in federal law enforcement is pretty much gone. And, and the same would, of course, apply to pretty much any attorney working in the Department of Justice, but particularly those who work in the National Security Division. So it's this threat that Trump is making at, at Clapper and, and Comey at all uh, isn't simply directed at them. I mean, those individuals, as I pointed out in my Just Security piece, they'll get by just fine, right? I mean, they've had their book deals. They've got their uh, network uh, contributor gigs, et cetera, et cetera. They're not going to be hurting. It's the people at the GS-12 to GS-14 level in the federal government working at the Department of Justice and especially the FBI right now, but also in the intelligence community to a degree, uh, that I actually worry about here in in terms of of potentially being at risk uh,
0: and and the chilling effect. I think the very real and powerful chilling effect that this kind of thing could have. On a related matter... Uh, the FISA court has released a substantially redacted, but less redacted than most of the, most of the time, um, warrant application, a FISA application uh, that was filed by the Department of Justice for uh, intercepts of communications between uh, Russians uh, and Carter Page, a one-time advisor to to the Trump campaign. And a lot of Republicans in Congress, before we saw, the public saw any of this uh, uh, application, were making a big deal out of the fact that they were making use of not not properly vetted information that had been circulating within uh, the intelligence community and in the Department of Justice for some time. What do we know now that uh, this application, still heavily redacted, uh, what is it te- telling us about the way this information has flowed and the arguments that had been made by uh, people in Congress about the quality of this warrant?
1: So on the first question, uh, what we know is that contrary to the claims that have been made by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez of California, the FBI was actually very blunt and very upfront uh, in their initial application uh, about the so-called Steele dossier, this, of course, being the um, essentially opposition research material that had been put together by former MI5 uh, operative, uh, British MI5 operative Christopher Steele uh, and his firm. And uh, in the document itself, uh, you know, the bureau is actually very clear about their relationship with Steele, and they are uh, clear about their view that uh, because his information was used successfully in other prosecutions. Uh, that he was, in fact, as far as the Bureau was concerned, a completely credible source. Now, you know, how much more of of the dossier necessarily is going to turn out to to be accurate or to be, you know, valuable? I'm not so sure that that's as much an issue now as the rest of the material that was essentially used to kind of uh, target Page and the like. And as you indicated, uh, this is 412 pages of material that the folks at Judicial Watch got through their lawsuit – <clears throat> and I'd say about 90 to 95% of, of of this stuff is completely blacked out. So when we start talking about the other sources uh, that were used here by the government, um, different kinds of electronic surveillance, possibly physical surveillance, possibly what are known as sneak and peek searches, things of that nature, uh, anything that would have been done along those lines, as well as any additional information that would have been supplied by foreign power, let's say like the U.K. itself, uh, that's absolutely redacted in this document. So I... I think we can say that what we know so far is that what the FBI has been saying publicly is validated uh, in a narrow sense by this document, which is that uh, they did tell the court up front what their relationship with was with Steele, uh, as well as their assessment that on the basis of Steele previously providing credible information to the Bureau, which they actually used in prosecutions. that. Uh, the concept that, that the President and Mr. Nunez have been pushing that they lie that the FBI lied to the FISA court simply doesn't have any credibility at least on the basis of these documents
0: and there's a couple of things that uh, people need to keep in mind with respect to FISA. It is a foreign intelligence court, and uh, when they ask when they are have information uh, that they're going to allow the government to collect. It is not for the purposes specifically of investigating a, a crime that has that they believe has been committed. It is for the gathering of foreign intelligence that they think may lead to uh, useful information for the intelligence community.
1: The the primary, or at least what is supposed to be essentially the primary purpose of intelligence collection conducted pursuant to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is, in fact, to collect intelligence on foreign foreign agents, like the 12 uh, uh, Russian intelligence officers that were recently indicted in absentia uh, by Mr. Comey. That's the entire reason uh, why FISA is supposed to exist. That is not to say that we should, you know, breathe some kind of sigh of relief and, and think that this process is necessarily pristine in any fashion. You know, my friends over at Demand Progress last year, produced an extremely compelling document that talked about a number of the problems at the FISA court to include false representations to the court uh, by the Bureau, uh, DOJ officials, and even NSA officials. So to me, one of the problems with any process that's secret is oftentimes the, the inability to actually really do a genuine audit on it and, and to really find out. And to the best of my knowledge, there's never actually been what I would call a relatively comprehensive audit uh, of FISA, you know, an independent audit where someone goes in and takes a look at, you know, the applications that were supplied by the bureau, and then also looks at the totality of the information surrounding each and every one of those applications to see whether or not what they actually told the court, you know, w- was truthful in that circumstance. I would be willing to bet if if an audit of that kind were conducted, we'd find out that there are in fact a lot more problems uh, with FISA than what most people uh, even imagine at this
0: point, but. We don't have a mechanism to do that, and to me, that's one of the great flaws in the system. Right, as uh, Julian Sanchez, our colleague, has pointed out, if you have problems with this particular application, then you have problems with FISA generally. Yeah, I, I, I think that,
1: you know, they, FISA, of course, came into existence after all the the scandals, the intelligence, domestic spying scandals in the nineteen sixties and seventies, and FISA was ultimately. A product, uh, if you will, of the investigation and deliberations and report of the Church Committee in 1976, and I, in my view, one of the problems fundamentally, you know, with the entire concept of FISA is secret law. You know, and and Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat of Oregon, member of the how or the Senate Intelligence Committee for a number of years now, has repeatedly. You know, pointed out that fact, that that we don't have the level of transparency that we need. And one of the uh, attempts at, at trying to at least get at part of that problem was uh, in the USA Freedom Act of, of 2015, which I have been and remain sharply critical of because I don't believe it's remotely a, a comprehensive uh, solution to, to the problem. But one thing that they did try to do was actually ensure that there would actually be an adversarial process to FISA which has never really been the case. So the court has the option. It does not have the requirement, but it has the option of essentially appointing what what, it would, what we would call defense counsel. In this case, we use the legal term amici, uh to re, to try to challenge and, and help review essentially the government's claims in a given FISA application. Uh, I think that ought to be mandatory in, in pretty much every case. I also think that we need to have um, uh, either the Federal Judicial Conference or another body uh, actually, conduct the kind of audit that I've described here of, of FISA, uh, the FISA process, FISA applications, and so on, uh, to, to come up with a, a concrete way of really increasing transparency here, and to just ask some fundamental questions about how much does the government really need, you know, to use this system. I have a lot more concerns about FISA, obviously, in a U.S. person context, right? I have fewer concerns about you know programs that we can we can say and activities that we can say with some degree of confidence, really do legitimately target foreign intelligence sources. Uh, but I don't think that, uh, I don't believe that the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which is now effectively defunct and has been since Mr. Trump came into power, uh, has ever had the resources, personnel or, or, or money, to do the kind of, of really in-depth auditing that needs to be done. And, and if there was any other body out there that we could potentially turn to to do that, it would be it. But, uh, you know, is Trump hasn't appointed anybody to it. I'll be surprised if he appoints anybody to it for the balance of his, of his presidency, frankly. He doesn't just seem to have that much of an interest in it.
0: So, Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.